Um, but wanting to talk about how does a sinner come to salvation, come, come to God? Uh, that's the question that, that has been posed to me recently or a discussion and uh, wanted to ask you all your thoughts on that. Ask our audience as well. Uh, what passages come to your mind as far as uh, how does a, uh, I think the, the statement that was made an unregenerate sinner come to God. Um, in my Bible, at least the phrase unregenerate sinner uh, doesn't appear. So I asked for uh, confirmation about what that meant to, to this individual. And, and they were simply saying somebody who was not born again, uh, somebody who's not a Christian, how do they come to God? And so there, there is an idea that's somewhat popular uh, that an unregenerate person, somebody who is lost, cannot choose to come to God. Um, and, and the fact is, let me just preface this before we get into the meat of the discussion. Uh, apart, from, apart from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, nobody can come to God because we, you know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so we can't do enough good to get ourselves right with God. It's going to take that sacrifice of Jesus uh, to take away our sin. Uh, but the question, I think what we're really getting at is, um, do I have the ability to make that choice? Once, once the sacrifice of Jesus has been made, do I now have the ability to make the choice to listen to the gospel, to consider it, to believe it, to take it into my heart, to become obedient, to, to become submissive to Christ, uh, to be to be buried with Christ, to become a part of his death? Or does God have to do something to me to make me able to come uh, to faith? All right. For me, I think some of it will just come back to our very one of the first stories we read about in the Bible in Genesis, when Adam and Eve are created in the image of God and they're given the command, do not eat of this tree. They have a choice in what they want to do. They can either choose to obey or they can choose to disobey. And it comes back to free will. Part of my problem with the, this regenerate, um, how did you all phrase it? The regenerate. Um, uh, unregenerate sinner. Unre unregenerate sinner is it kind of takes away that aspect of free will that I see from the very beginning that someone has. They, we have the choice to serve God. Uh, Jesus will say in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's a choice that you have and your choices will reflect whether or not you love God. So let me uh, present this idea that was uh, shown to me in Ephesians two, uh, Paul says, beginning in verse one, and he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins what you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince, the power of the air, the spirit, who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Then the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace, his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. And so the point is emphasized 
uh, I guess about three or four times, he made us alive, verse 1. Verse 4, um, um, uh, I'm sorry, verse 5, uh, made us alive together. And then in verse 8, by grace you have been saved. And then at the end of verse 8, it's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. So the argument is, with these four points and these three verses in this text, is that God is the one who is performing this operation. Can a dead person come back to life? They cannot. And right. so God has to be the one that, that performs that operation. A, a dead person can't do anything. So I think it's a pretty compelling argument if this was all that we had, and we might be left to think, well, that might be you know, the, the way that the way that's being described, maybe it's just what happened. Except when he's writing to the Ephesians. And so if you could just imagine yourself, you know, put yourself in Ephesus, for example. Uh, for some, that's easier than others. But uh, imagining being in Ephesus in Acts, the 19th chapter, and Paul comes to Ephesus, and what it says in Acts 19 and in verse 8 and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning yeah. the things of the kingdom of God. That seems really significant to help us understand what Paul is describing. He doesn't have to tell the Ephesians how they were saved. He says it, it, it's a gift of God. Nobody denies that. God made them alive. Nobody denies that. It's by the grace of God. But that doesn't mean that they had nothing to do with it. In fact, they had to be persuaded they had to be reasoned with. Um, and so that's something that is up to them. And within the text, some accepted and some didn't, in the, as the following verses show in uh, Acts 19, verse 9 and, and following. As is a common theme in the book of Acts. Some will choose, some won't. Exactly. Um, and so here we find unregenerate sinners, to use their terminology, being reasoned with and persuaded with and then when Paul writes to them years later, he's describing their salvation. They were dead in their sins, but they had been taught. And, and to me, that's the key there, is that it's not some miraculous operation upon their hearts separate and apart from uh, their free will, as you stated earlier. Yeah, absolutely. They did not make themselves alive. God made them alive in Christ. But that doesn't speak anything to the question of, did they have a choice to accept God's grace or not? Uh, God made them alive. He, they were justified by the grace of God. Uh, it's a gift, this, this salvation, this justification. It's a gift. But as you said, when you look at Acts chapter 19, you see Paul reasoning and persuading. You go through the New Testament, so many passages. Let's, let's start with John 10. In John 10, uh, Jesus is talking with some who don't believe. So here's an example. Somebody you'd have to say is unregenerate uh, in the language that, that people like to use. Now, what's it going to take to bring them around? What does Jesus try? Does he call down the Holy Spirit upon them and cause something to happen to their hearts so suddenly they're able to believe, whereas a moment ago they weren't? Or does he appeal to their their intellectual ability, what God has blessed them with in terms of their minds. So let's look at John chapter 10 in verse 37. Jesus says to them, if I do not the works of my father, and in the context when he says works, he's talking about miracles, believe me not. If I don't do the works, don't believe me. 
but if I do them, though you believe not me, so are they unregenerate in the language that people use? Obviously they are. They don't believe him. Though you believe not me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. What he's calling upon them to do is to look at the miracles that he does and see the evidence that points to the fact he is the Christ, that he is a messenger come from God. Uh, that's, that's how God calls us. He provides testimony. He provides evidence. And it's up to us now to choose whether we're going to accept that. So what you're saying, Jeff, is it's not some sort of feeling that they would get or some type of premonition that they would get to, to serve and to obey God, but it was a definitive thing that they were able to see and know that Jesus is the Son of God. They, that's right. They have the capability, uh, the ability to look at the evidence, to hear the message, consider it, and come to a conclusion. Now, some people are going to be blinded, and they don't want to see. They don't want to hear. But that's our choice. You know, when Paul in Acts the 26th chapter stood before uh, Festus and Agrippa, uh, what do we have? Agrippa says to Paul in verse 28, with but little persuasion, you would fain make me a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that whether with little or with much, not you only, but also all that hear me this day might become such as I am, except these bonds. What was Paul doing? He was appealing to their, their ability to understand facts. And he was presenting to them the evidence that Jesus was the Christ. They may or they may not uh, receive that. That's up to them. Which then, exactly, so whether they receive that or not, then that's a question, are, are they going to have faith? Are they going to believe? Um, which, thinking about that text there in Ephesians 2, uh, by grace you've been saved through faith. And so you have God's part and you have man's part. Some would suggest that faith is also something that God gives people, uh, that, that faith is, that, or and a synonym, belief, um, is not something that a man chooses to, to have. God thrusts that upon them. And yet we have passages like Romans ten seventeen. faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so it's, it's the word of God, just like you showed there in John 10, Jesus presented words uh, in Acts 19 to the church in Ephesus. Paul presented words to them. Uh, along with the confirmation, the miracles in both of those situations, the text is describing that very thing. And so teaching and then evidence that it's true, that seems a very consistent theme through the book of Acts. Now, some people are going to say, well, okay, faith comes by hearing, but if everybody hears, some believe and some don't believe, they're going to say, well, why is it some believe and some don't? And, and the Calvinist will answer is because God has not made it possible for the ones who don't believe to believe. Um, they are unregenerate and they are not predestined to believe, so they will not. And others, God has predestined to believe. The thing is, where in the Bible do, do we get that? Where would we turn in the Bible to show that God is picking and choosing? And he says, I'm not going to let you be saved. You will have no hope but these people over here, I'm going to let them be saved. The fact is, we see the opposite, don't we? Yeah, exactly. Maybe following that thread then, Acts 19, Paul goes to Ephesus. He teaches there. People are converted to the Lord. He writes, the, he writes this letter to Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. And then he writes a letter to the preacher there in 1 Timothy 2. Uh, 1 Timothy. Uh, Timothy is in Ephesus. 
And one of the things that Paul tells Timothy, to, to your very point, in 1 Timothy 2 and in verse 3, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. So when Paul was in Ephesus, and only some people believed and some didn't, some scoffed at them, and, and some followed after him and went to the school of Tyrannus and, and became disciples, and uh, well, that wasn't God's will that some turned away. God turned all of them to be saved. I, I just think it's really handy to, to just, all we have to do is stay in the city of Ephesus, and you know, don't get lost in Ephesus, just stay right there, and uh, you can see this whole thread running through. God wants everybody to be saved, but he leaves it up to the individual. I, I think one of the keys here as well, you go back to the Old Testament, and you could almost hear someone who believes this making the case. We'll see even the Israelites, uh, they were the chosen ones of God. God chose them to be saved, and he didn't choose anyone else to be saved. But a thorough reading of the old, old law, you would see that God gave provision for the Gentiles to come into the Jewish nation, um, into, in, into his chosen people. Because I would submit it's not as much as, as who the chosen people are, but it's the chosen type of person that God is going to save. And that's where it really rolls over into the New Testament. God will save all who have, clo- have been clothed with Christ. That, that is the race he is wanting to save, is those who have put on Christ in baptism, Galatians 3.27. And so I think that's a really helpful distinction to see, because it could be easy to go back to the Old Testament and see, you know, and say, well, look, God was only saving the Israelites. So let's not be shocked that he's only saving this, this you know, group of people now. But um, God gave provision for Gentiles to come in. Romans chapter 1, uh, Paul will make the case that the Gentiles, they were able to see creation. They were able to see the, those things and, and understand and know that there is a God. You know, um, Joe, I know you want to stay in Ephesus, but Libby and I were just in Ephesus a couple of weeks ago, and three days later we went to Thessalonica. So I'm going to go to Thessalonica in Acts 17. <laughs> We've got a... We've got a really good comment from Lori B. Secker, uh, John six forty four and following. Um, well, we'll go ahead and turn there and read that. Um, I'll get to Thessalonica in a minute. <laughs> no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And it is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the fathers comes to me. Um, yeah, and this, is, of course, is the bread of life section. But she says it's an interesting example of people who turn away from and turn to Jesus and his teaching. It includes the teaching that no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. The way that happens um, is described in the next verse. Uh, They're taught, they hear, and they learn. Then we see the reaction to this and the rest of Jesus's teaching. Some found it too hard to accept and they left. Peter and the other apostles stayed because as Peter said, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we talked about that in last week's podcast. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ. And yet, this is a really good point Lori makes. Judas was one of those who stayed. And it is noted that he would betray him at the end of the chapter. In this one event, we have people who listened until what Jesus said didn't match up with what they expected or prepared to accept. People who stayed to learn more and one who would later choose to betray Jesus. So, yeah, she's right. That's an excellent, excellent example. Yeah, in, in John 6 there where it says, uh, no man, this is verse 44 that you quoted, no man can come to me except the Father that sent me draw him. So if you stop there, there are people who think that, okay, there's a passage saying I can't possibly uh, respond to the gospel until Jesus or until God picks me 
and says, okay, I'm going to give Jeff the ability to respond to the gospel. And yet it does, as you read, goes on and shows how God draws them. He, it says, uh, quoting the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. Everyone that hath heard from the Father and hath learned comes to me. That, that's a reference. It's a quotation from Isaiah, the 54th chapter in verse 13. All your sons will be taught of the Lord. In Isaiah, the prophet is, is speaking to a rebellious people, people who are in sin, people whom in chapter 1 the Lord equates with Sodom and Gomorrah. And he talks about their sacrifices and how meaningless their sacrifices are as long as they're in their sin. And he says in in Isaiah 1, verse 18, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey. He's reaching out to a people in sin, and he is talking to them about their sin, talking about what their sin has done to their relationship with him. And he is saying, uh, let's reason together. Uh, You need to consent. That's a choice that you need to make and obey. There's no room for consenting and then obeying in in this conception of things where God has to, first of all, say, okay, I'm going to open Jeff's heart and make him consent, and then he'll obey. Excellent point. Yeah, that's exactly right. We, there's a tendency to stop at verse 44, but the, the following verse is very much... Uh, In John 6, yeah. Can I go to Thessalonica now? Go, go to Thessalonica, Jeff. All right. So in, in Acts chapter 17... Um, Paul, as his custom was, when he gets to Thessalonica, this is verse 2, went in under the, them, and for three Sabbath days, so he'd go into the synagogue each Sabbath day, and for three Sabbath days, reasoned with them from the scriptures, opening and alleging that it behooved the Christ to suffer. What does that mean? He opens the scriptures, and he points to passages in the Old Testament scriptures that indicated when the Messiah would come, he would suffer. And, and be raised from the dead. And then Paul says, this Jesus, whom said he, I proclaim unto you, is the Christ. So he says, look at the scriptures. They said when the Christ, the Messiah would come, he would suffer and be raised from the dead. I am affirming that Jesus, the one I've been talking to you about, is that Christ. What was the response? Verse four, some of them were persuaded. Now, somebody's going to say, yes, right there. The ones that were persuaded, those are the ones who, who God decided, okay, I'm going to change their hearts and make it possible for them to believe. It doesn't say that. What we read is Paul went into the synagogues on three different occasions, three different Sabbath days. And what was he doing? He wasn't saying, well, no sense in me talking, trying to persuade you. Sooner or later, God's going to open your hearts. And why should I waste my breath until God opens your hearts? He was spending three weeks, three different Sabbath days, turning to the scriptures and making the case. Some were persuaded, some were not. That's the difference in what in the choice that they made. And then we get to the next city, Berea, and now it says uh, there's a difference in how many of the Jews are persuaded between Berea and Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, it wasn't so many of the Jews, more Gentiles. But we get to Berea. And it says in verse 11, when Paul went into the synagogue of the Jews, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind. So what was the difference between Berea and Thessalonica? Was the difference that 
God just decided I'm going to save more Jews in Berea than I did in Thessalonica. No, it was that in Berea, they were more noble. What does that tell you? They had, they were people who were willing to be persuaded. They were willing to hear what Paul was preaching. This is very different than the idea that God just picks and chooses. And, and maybe thinking about being in Thessalonica uh, brought my attention to, again, Paul's letter to them, which just, again, confirms that thought. First uh, Thessalonians 1, 2, and 3, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. And somebody says, oh, yeah, see, God elected them. But he goes on and he describes how they received God's word uh, through the rest of the first chapter, the second chapter, verse 13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. And so they had the choice. You, you, you see in the book of Acts, people having a choice. Then he writes the letter to them later on, and he talks about how when you chose, when you had this faith, because you received the word, because you heard, it's just so consistent in the, the, the book of Acts showing the, the history of the early church and then these letters, uh, great parallels there. And let's go back to and, Ephesians. And, oh, go ahead, Chase. Well, I just want to say... From the Calvinist standpoint, the people who believe this type of thing, you want to put yourself in their shoes and understand, well, why Why are they saying this? And I understand we're going to talk about where this doctrine comes from in a little bit. But I really do think it comes from, from a want to, to help people understand that you cannot save yourself by your own works, which, um, which we would amen heartily. Mm -hmm. And so I believe it's coming from a sincere, a, a sincere want to, to help people understand God is merciful. God is gracious. He went, God did not have to save us. He did not have to send Jesus, but he did. And so he's gracious and merciful enough. And so he, uh, he must have to choose us like this. Um, so I do believe they're coming from a good, uh, uh, trying to come from a good heart. They, they are, they are coming from a place where they are acknowledging that salvation is God's doing. And that that's good. But the problem that they have is they think, that if God allows me a choice, then that somehow that makes it not God's doing. Right, right. See, just because I say, yes, Lord, I will submit to your will. Yes, I believe you, and I choose to bring my life to you, doesn't mean now somehow that I get the credit for my salvation. The fact is, I'm having to come to Jesus Christ and, and be buried with him in baptism so that his death is the atoning sacrifice for my sins because I can't get rid of my sins. Uh, I am totally dependent upon the grace of God and Jesus Christ. I just have a choice whether I'm going to accept that grace or not. But if I can go back to Ephesians, you know, even once we become Christians, we still have a choice. We have a choice whether or not we're going to live the way we ought to live. If you look at the book of Ephesians, there are six chapters, and, and you can split it right down the middle. The first three chapters, Paul spends writing to Gentile Christians, talking about what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. The last three chapters are how they need to live. 
he's talking to them about things like fornication. Don't commit fornication. Don't even let it be named among you. He's talking to them about things like uh, not stealing. He's talking to them about things like telling the truth, about having no evil speech come out of your mouth. Those are things he's telling them, you need to, to do what's right. You need to obey God's will in these matters. Look at the connection between the first three chapters and the last three chapters. First three chapters, Paul says, look what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And in order to, to get to his, his appeal that they live right, the segue in chapter 4, verse 1 is, therefore, I, therefore, the prisoner and the Lord, beseech you to walk worthily of the calling wherewith you were called. What he does is he says, look what God has done for you. Therefore, live the way you ought to live. The point I'm getting at is it is an intellectual appeal. You could say it's an emotional appeal, and that's true. But it is an appeal to the mind of man to appreciate the blessings of Christ and his sacrifice and to respond to that, a choice which they clearly have the ability to make. That's the purpose of the letter is to say, here's the reason you need to make this choice. Look what God did for you. So even after we become Christians, we still have this choice to make to decide, yes, I'm going to continue to walk in the ways of God, or I'm going to do better at walking in the ways of God. Great, great observation. I'm wondering, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm going to uh, throw mud in the water here. I hope not. But uh, one of the thoughts that is presented is that you cannot, as an unregenerate sinner, uh, you cannot come to God without the Holy Spirit acting upon you in some uh, miraculous fashion. I, I think that's a fair, uh, they, they might not use those exact words. I'm, I'm not trying to, uh, to misrepresent them. But I wonder if Galatians 3 uh, doesn't even, doesn't portray the order in a different way. Um, Paul is concerned about the Galatians turning away from the gospel, away from the truth. And so, he says in verse one, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you uh, that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? No. So they didn't receive faith by the spirit. They received the spirit by the hearing of faith. Mm-hmm. I, I Maybe there's something wrong with that, but that seems like it's a, a significant order to me. I think you're right. I think you know, the no, Holy I, I Spirit think... comes from that. The Spirit yeah. is at work in the very beginning. Is the Spirit through the Apostle Paul or through whatever messenger or through the Scriptures is convicting the people of their sin, but people have to hear that, and they have to hear that with faith, and if they hear that with faith so that they believe, okay, I am convinced, now they receive the Spirit, and that's a choice that they make. Right. Yeah, no, and I, I personally think that's our under, my understanding of Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that's gifts of the Holy Spirit, as in speaking in tongues, prophesying, but I believe that is the, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you as God's temple, as God's per- person today. So, so let's, let's, move, uh, let's move the ball forward here a little bit. Let's talk about the implications of this doctrine that uh, God picks and chooses uh, that God has to do something to your heart before you have the ability to to listen to His Word. Um, what would that say about God? We mentioned First Timothy chapter two and verses. What was it? Verse three or verse four? I think it was. 
then there's also Second Peter chapter three, and it says um, in Second Peter chapter three and verse uh, nine that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's what the Bible says about God's desire to save man. But what would it say about God's desire to save man if, in fact, there's a whole group of people, in fact, most people, who have no hope, they have no possibility of responding to the gospel and will never have a possibility of responding to the gospel because God isn't going to change their hearts uh, in this supernatural way. Doesn't that make God a respecter of persons? And doesn't the Bible say God is not a respecter of persons? But, but I, I mean, the first Timothy two and the, the second Peter three are strong, but what would you say to Acts 10 and verse 34 though, in that regard, and Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows partiality. <laughs> I think read that carefully, Joe, go back and read that one more time and see what word you missed. <laughs> okay. Let me try it again. And then Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows oh, no partiality. Yeah, no partiality. The old translation that I have says is no respecter of persons. That's an odd expression, but that, I like the translation does not show partiality better. But, but, but maybe even just thinking about both of those, uh, both translations, I mean, God is not a respecter. He does not respect one person over another. Oh. He's partial. He doesn't discriminate. And the next verse even but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Again, it's like that Galatians 3, 2. This is the order. It's not whoever is accepted by him fears him and works righteousness. It's everyone who fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. If I believed that I have no ability to comprehend the gospel and respond to it unless God, first of all, does a supernatural work on my heart. I think I'd have to ask the question, if God did do a supernatural work on my heart so that I could believe and respond, why me and not somebody else? Is it because I deserve it more? Is God picking me out and saying, Jeff's a better person than that other person? That's totally contrary to what the Bible teaches. That would be, that would really be somehow I'm worthy innately. And, and that's not true. So why me? And of course the Calvinist answer to that is, well, God, God is sovereign. God is sovereign in his yeah. sovereign will. He just picks, but the Bible doesn't say God demonstrates his sovereignty by just arbitrarily Romans 9 is where they would want to go. Not that person. Let's go Romans 9. Yep. Um, can, can I just make one point before we do that too? Yeah. Some of this might not be connected at all, so you all just shut me down. But I, in Romans 3, Paul will say, talking about Jesus, it was through Jesus God displayed publicly as a propitiation, his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the dem for this demonstration. I say of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just mm -hmm. and the justifier mm -hmm. of the one who has faith in Jesus. Mm -hmm. If the regenerate unregenerate sinner theory is true, it really makes me think that what Jesus did on the cross was not necessary at all. Because God wouldn't need that sacrifice. God wouldn't need that if he's just randomly picking and choosing 
who's being saved. Uh, it kind of negates a lot of that. It was at the cross that God was able to both justify us and uh, be just in his nature because sin could not go unpunished. Mm-hmm. So anyways, this, these might be all just random thoughts I've been having, but it kind of negates the cross in my opinion, in some ways um, when you take this viewpoint and I, I, and, and they, they would say in Calvinism, of course, limited atonement, Christ only died for those who, who God chose anyways. Um, so anyway, yeah, I wish, I wish we'd get some feedback from some viewers who hold this view, who are Calvinists and believe that God picks and chooses, but you mentioned they would go to Romans nine and that's, that's true. They, that's where they would go. So let, let me jump in. Well, right before we do that, just on Chase's, Tying that together with a cross, I think that is extremely legitimate. Uh, Jesus himself said in John 12, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. You know, he wasn't just drawing the elect or a select few. Uh, He was drawing all peoples. Now, we have the choice of whether to accept that draw, but Jesus' death on the cross was intended for all of mankind. Right. It was not a limited atonement just for the ones God had previously determined to pick out individually to save. Yep. While we were still sinners, God, or Christ died for the ungodly. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Romans 5.8. All right. So guys, but somebody's going to turn to Romans 9. And say, Here's the passage that says God just arbitrarily picks. Uh, verse 11, the children having not yet been born, neither having done anything good or bad, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calls, it was said unto her, to Rebecca, the elder shall serve the younger. Even as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So they're going to say, well, there's the passage. It didn't have anything to do with their character. didn't have anything to do with what they'd done before they were even born. God hated Esau and he loved Jacob. And if you fault God for that, why you don't understand God is sovereign. You don't have any right to question him any more than the pot has a, a right to complain about the potter's work. Uh, you know what? You're just the thing he made. So shut up, and that's the way it is. And so I think what we ought to do is look for the conclusion that Paul is making in this text down in verse 18. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. God, God has the right to show mercy on whoever he wants to, and God has the right to harden. Uh, and reject whoever he wants to. God has that right. I think that is that is the conclusion that Paul is making in chapter nine. And it, and it needs to be in context of what Paul is trying to do in all of Romans here. He's just spent a good bit of time talking about the faults that the old law had. Naturally, some of these Jewish readers, Jewish Christian readers would be thinking, well, what in the world was Israel all about anyways? And I think this is kind of Paul's response to maybe that question they might be having in the moment where Paul is saying, now, look, we still have to see this in the scope of God can have mercy on whom he likes and harden who he likes. We even see that in the old law itself. And so that's the problem I see a lot of people having with picking out passages from Romans is not seeing it in the greater context of what Paul's sure. doing. I think you're right. The, the, the overall context, of course, is justification, and justification is by faith, and that's equally true for Gentile and Jew. And, and Paul is addressing a mentality amongst Jews that they were the ones who could be justified and, and not Gentiles, certainly not on the same terms. And so Paul is arguing, hey, God, God gets to choose. He gets to decide and if he decides it's going to be justification based on faith rather than on the law, 
rather than on being circumcised, rather than on being a Jew, that's his right. He gets to decide that. And so then he uses these illustrations from the Old Testament. He uses God's making a choice when he decided that uh, the older would serve the younger, that is, Esau would serve Jacob, or Esau's descendants would serve Jacob's descendants. And he says, God made that choice. He has that right, and he can have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And so he has now decided, not, well, not now, it's from all eternity, but he has decided he's going to have mercy on those who come to him in faith, uh, not just on those who are circumcised or not just those who happen to be Jews. That is the point he's illustrating. And so if we go back to this statement in verse 11 and 12, and it talks about Jacob and Esau. Notice the choosing between Jacob and Esau. That just illustrates God's right to choose. It doesn't illustrate that God arbitrarily saves one and not another uh, individual. It's not even talking about the salvation of Jacob and Esau. It's talking about the fact that the descendants of Esau would be subservient to the descendants of Jacob. And that's what God chose. It does illustrate the, illustri- illustrate the fact that God gets to choose. But he's, you can't turn to this passage and find in it an example of God arbitrarily saving one person and condemning another. Okay. Excellent. There's more we can say about it here in Romans 9. We have seven minutes. Um, I don't know if you want to walk through Romans 9 or if we want to uh, turn our attention to where this doctrine comes from. We've already alluded to Calvinism somewhat, but we haven't explained why this doctrine comes from Calvinism. Which way do you want to go? Well, how about if we think a little bit more, in, in my mind, Romans 9, 10, and 11. I think so. Is so handy to yeah. make sure that we understand the train of thought that's going through those three chapters. I think so. I think you're right. Let's, let's do that. So the rest, uh, the, the next section of, of Romans 9, he uses uh, illustration of Pharaoh uh, and Moses, as well as using illustration of the Israelites, um, the quote there seems as if it's referring to Pharaoh in verse 15, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. That's actually from Exodus 33, thinking about the golden calf incident. So God's chosen people even there. God has the right to choose whomever he wants. But in those texts, it's because Pharaoh refused to let his people go. It's because the Israelites chose idolatry. Um, but yes, God has the absolute right to show mercy on those, who, whoever he wants to. And then in the book of Romans, who does Paul say God has chosen to have mercy on? Those who have faith. Those who have faith. Yeah. And, and, and if you turn to Romans 10 and verse 11, scripture says, whosoever believes on him shall not be put to shame. And that puts the ball in, in our court. Exactly. Right. Uh, and so then, after just tremendous uh, several quotes, especially from the Old Testament, a lot of them surrounding the context of Isaiah 53, even um, of Jesus' death on the cross and that gospel being preached to the world. Um, the, the, the gospel has gone out to everyone. Verse 18, a quote from Psalm 19. Um, then Jew and Gentile, he's tying them together there. So we, we might end up saying, well, what's he saying in chapter 10? In chapter 11, he says, I say then. <laughs> you know, it, it's really helpful when he says something and he tells us what he was saying. Yeah. Uh, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I am also an Israelite. And so he's like, it, you might read chapter 10 and think, 
9 and 10, you think he's, he's, he's rejecting the Israelites. And Paul says, no, he's not rejecting the Israelites. It's those who turn to him, like in the days of Elijah, verse 3, and following um, uh, whoever will turn to him, whoever doesn't bow the knee to Baal. And then in 11 through the end of, uh, uh, well, through most of the rest of chapter 11, uh, he's making the point that those who were lost can come back to the Lord, and those who were saved, the Gentiles, they can also be cast out. Uh, I just think chapter 11 is so significant, especially as it ties together this idea of God has the right to choose. He does it based upon the gospel being preached. Those who hear faith are saved, but they can turn away from it. And so you have passages like verse 22. Again, I just, I just constantly look for these therefores. There, that's, that's the clue for me. As somebody a long time ago said, you know, look and see what it's there for. Uh, therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fail severity, but toward you goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Mm-hmm. So Jew and Gentile can be saved. God has the right to choose whoever he wants. He does that through the through gospel, the gospel message of Jesus dying on the cross. Man has the right to accept that or not, chapter 10. And whatever, if man accepts it, they can be saved. But they can also turn away from it later in life, and they can be lost again. Verse 23 in Romans 11, And they also, if they continue not in their unbelief, shall be grafted in. If, if I hold to this doctrine that I can't possibly choose to believe until God does something to me, that's, that's just cruel to say, hey, uh, you can be grafted in if you don't continue in your unbelief. Well, how can I not continue in my unbelief if God doesn't do something in my heart to, to make it possible according to this doctrine? But that's not what Paul says here. He doesn't say uh, you can be grafted in if God decides to pick you and does something to your heart so you can believe. He says they can be grafted in if they don't continue in their unbelief. The ball is in their court. Yeah, there's a condition there. Clearly implies a choice on their part. Great. Well, we are almost out of time. Either of you have any concluding thoughts there? Boy, you know, Well, we, we, go ahead, Chase. We've kind of rushed through 9, 10, 11. It, uh, I'd like to go through it more slowly, but if I start through it more slowly, there's no way we'll do that in a minute and a half. Chase, what were you going to say? I was just going to conclude by reading 12, 1, and 2. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is and that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Actually, Lori Biesecker left a comment for us along these lines pointing out that chapters one through 11 is about what God has done for his people. And then chapter 12 is about what our response should be now that we live um, in, in God's Israel now in God's uh, in God's kingdom and in in the one body. And so we still offer up these sacrifices daily. Um, We we put ourselves to death and we serve the Lord. We're not being conformed to what the world's doing, but we're being transformed into what God wants us to be. And so that's, that's where Paul is moving with this train, that God still expects something from us as his people today. Yeah, Lori's perception there, her description of the layout of the book of Romans is very true. It's very accurate. It's very typical of Paul to write a letter in which he lays out kind of the doctrine. And then there's a very practical exhortation 
in the latter part of the letter, and that's what you have in Romans. The practical instruction comes in chapter 12 and following. Well, thank you all for listening. We are out of time. Uh, we'll look forward to having you back with us next week. Um, and so thank you guys. Thank you, Chase. Thank you, Joe. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, guys.